0: Want to be a part of the conversation? Then let us know on the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Perspective with Jesse Zerowell on today's News Talk, TNT Radio.
1: Welcome to Perspective. I'm Jesse Zerowell, your host for the hour. I am flying solo today with a monologue. Let's take off and get right into it, picking up with something that I discussed in part yesterday with Issa Blumey, and that is the WHO. We discussed yesterday the role the WHO has been playing with in the war on Palestine and the reframing it's been undergoing, the rebranding it's been undergoing as a benevolent entity because simply Tedros made some statements that many people seem to like. At the same time, it needs to be pointed out that the WHO is still pushing for a so-called pandemic treaty. The WHO is still pushing for irreversible amendments to the international health regulations. And if you go to the WHO's website main page, you will see that the WHO is pushing updated guidelines on treatments for COVID-19 as of November 10th. More on that in a bit. It is also warning us that working under the sun causes one in three deaths from non melanoma skin cancer. If you go down a bit on the page, you will be able to tune into a podcast that enlightens us about how climate change is supposedly affecting our health. And then you get a look at the campaigns and events it is putting on this month, one of the campaigns being Cervical Cancer Elimination Day of Action, which is on the 17th of this month. I spoke last week about cervical cancer in the context of HPV and the experimental mass experimental poisoning that is underway in Nigeria. Tens of millions of women are being, tens of millions of women are being subjected to an HPV vaccination so-called campaign that is intended to reach even into the remotest parts of the country. But in addition to that, here are some events that are scheduled over the next few days. A workshop on surveillance, including drug resistance and malaria elimination in the Greater Mekong subregion. Leading Laboratories Through Emergencies. Part of the WHO Public Health Laboratories Webinar Series. EPI WIN Webinar, A Fragile State of Preparedness. 2023 Global Preparedness Monitoring Board Report which is tied into pandemic prevention and preparedness, tied into the pandemic treaty, as it's come to be widely known. There are results from the Tracking Antimicrobial Resistance Country Self-Assessment Survey, or TRACSS, quadripartite webinar, taking place in two days, which is a clear indication that there is tracking and tracing still very much going on. Clearly in this case, in the context of so-called antimicrobial resistance. And last but not least, we are still celebrating World Health Day, WHO's 75th anniversary, anniversary which started in April of this year and is set to go until April of next year. So the WHO, despite statements by Tedros at the Security Council briefing last Friday is still pushing the same anti-human, I contend, agendas as it's always been pushing And we would do well not to fall into the trap of praising it or thinking that it's on our side simply because it's Lord Master uttered a few words that are appeasing to seemingly many. And this is not to say that there aren't people on the ground in Palestine and elsewhere affiliated with the who who are doing good work just like with the un and UNRWA specifically there are people who are doing good work to help the people of palestine for example but a lot of the work these people do a lot of what they try to voice in terms of what they see happening is undercut by the larger agendas of the who which are of primary importance to the who and the un in the case of the un its sustainable development goals and 2030 agenda none of that has fallen by the wayside despite the overwhelming and certainly due attention that's been given to the war on Palestine and again we would do well to remember that. Now in terms of the WHO's updated guidelines on treatments for COVID-19 which were published on the 10th of this month last Friday, it bears pointing out that first of all The WHO still considers COVID-19 to be an emergency, even though it downgraded the description of that emergency earlier this year. And when we get into the updated guidelines on treatments for COVID-19, it is, well, disconcerting to say the least. As this press release points out, this is the 13th update to these guidelines, and the risk rates for hospital admission in patients with non-severe COVID-19 have been updated. The current COVID-19 virus variants, I'm reading now from the press release, tend to cause less severe disease while immunity levels are higher due to vaccination leading to lower risks of severe illness and death for most patients. So not only do we have the continuation of the COVID-19 operation, the COVID-19 myth, the virus so-called myth, but also the continuation of the myth that so-called vaccination has led to lower risks of severe illness and death by COVID-19 for most patients. This update includes new baseline risk estimates for hospital admission in patients with non-severe COVID-19. The new, quote, moderate risk, unquote, category now includes people previously considered to be high risk Including older people and/or those with chronic conditions, disabilities, and comorbidities of chronic disease. The updated risk estimates will assist healthcare professionals and to identify individuals at high, moderate, or low risk of hospital admission, and to tailor treatment according to WHO guidelines. So, what we have here is what's been going on. Since the start of the COVID 19 operation back in 2020, and since well before that, with so called pandemics and similar emergencies, the moving around of categories, what fits into certain categories to make there seem to be a threat or make there seem to be less of a threat. And the same charade is continuing. Now, what are the updated guidelines? Well, people considered at high risk are people who are immunosuppressed if they contract COVID-19 and they have an estimated hospitalization rate of 6%. Those at moderate risk are people over 65 years old, those with conditions like obesity, diabetes, and or chronic conditions, including chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, kidney or liver disease, cancer, people with disabilities, and those with comorbidities of chronic disease. And they have an estimated hospitalization rate of 3%. Now, you'll remember that or perhaps not because this this rubric has been changed around so many times 13 again according to the who you'll remember that those in the now moderate category were once considered at high risk but this is not the case anymore only the immunosuppressed are at high risk because if we're to believe the who's story immunity levels are higher due to vaccination due to poisoning due to a serum that does nothing in terms of health and can do nothing in terms of supposedly combating something that has never been proven to exist by the scientific method Who's at low risk? Those are most people. Most people are at low risk, quoting specifically here from the WHO, and have a hospitalization rate of 0.5%. There is also in this update a review of COVID-19 treatments for people with non-severe COVID-19, whatever that is. Whatever they've decided that is, WHO continues to strongly rec- recommend nirmatrelvir/ritonavir, also known by its brand name Paxlovid, for people at high risk and moderate risk of hospitalization. The recommendations state that nirmatrelvir/ritonavir is considered the best choice for most eligible patients, given its therapeutic benefits, ease of administration, and fewer concerns about potential harms. nirmatrelvir ritonavir was first recommended by WHO in April 2022. Now, Paxlovid, based on my research, has been like the so-called vaccines for so-called COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 virus, an utter failure and that's because it is only a poison that can treat nothing because there's nothing there for it to treat so what is this all about in terms of continuing to recommend that people ingest these poisons I don't know but it's certainly not a it's certainly not about the well-being of humanity. It gets worse though, because as the WHO recommends, if nirmatrelvir/ritonavir or paxlovid as its brand name is, is not available to patients at high risk of hospitalization, WHO suggests the use of molnupiravir or remdesivir instead. So the WHO is still recommending the use of remdesivir for so-called patients at high risk of hospitalization from so-called SARS-CoV-2 infection and the development of so-called COVID-19. You may remember that remdesivir was used to murder many, many people, throughout the world, especially in the United States, and especially in the early days of the COVID-19 operation. It was used in hospitals along with ventilation. This despite the fact that it is a known and proven toxin to the kidneys. It causes renal failure once certain doses are reached. and If one looks at the clinical trial data for remdesivir, which of course, the clinical trial was conducted in Africa, the death rate was about 50% for those who took remdesivir as a so-called treatment. So this is a killer poison unequivocally and it's still being recommended by the WHO. Moving on, WHO suggests against the use of monopiravir and remdesivir for patients at moderate risk, judging the potential harms to outweigh the limited benefits in patients at moderate risk of hospital admission. For people at low risk of hospitalization, WHO does not recommend any antiviral therapy Symptoms like fever and pain can continue to be managed with analgesics like paracetamol. I'll point out that paracetamol, there are similar iterations of that here in the US, like ibuprofen, so-called non-steroidal anti-inflammatory treatments. I'll point out that these are toxins as well. And what they do is they alleviate symptoms by reducing inflammation, but they don't do anything to address the symptoms of illness. A lot of people take Advil, a lot of people take aspirin, for example when they're feeling under the weather. And if we look at such sickness as a normal response of the body to purge itself of toxins, it's built up over an extended period of time. You want those symptoms to run their course. You want your nose to run. You want to cough. You want to sweat out a fever. You don't want to suppress that because suppressing that with agents like paracetamol or their American iterations or Western, largely Western-used iterations, even though paracetamol is a Western-used product, I realize, using these so-called treatments or, symptom reducers what they do most likely is suppress the normal response of the body to purge itself of the toxins and pushes the toxins deeper or back in to the body and those toxins will make an attempt to purge themselves the body will make an attempt to purge those toxins at a later point and very likely lead to not just a worse bout of illness but possibly the possibly damage to biology to internal systems that are trying to get this stuff out of the body running its normal course but have not been allowed to because these agents have been introduced to suppress that process. WHO also recommends against use of new antiviral, VV116, with which I'm not familiar, for patients except in clinical trials. Lastly, the update also includes a strong recommendation against the use of ivermectin for patients with non-severe COVID-19. WHO continues to advise that in patients with severe or critical COVID-19, ivermectin should only be used in clinical trials. To that, I'll add what I just added to the paracetamol nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory category. Ivermectin should be considered to be doing the same thing in terms of suppressing the normal purging of toxins that the body knows how to, and wants to undertake. And it's very interesting how in the earlier days of the COVID-19 operation, Ivermectin was pushed and is still pushed by a lot in the so-called health freedom movement, whatever that is nowadays, as a life-saving treatment for something, a virus so-called, and a disease so-called that have never been proven to scientifically exist. Now, what is the point of taking this. If these things have never been proven to exist and what they do is suppress the purging, the normal purging that the body wants to, needs to undertake. Well, it's symptom reduction and that likely explains why a lot of people quote, unquote, feel better after taking or have felt better after taking ivermectin. Why a lot of doctors whom I think mean well have prescribed ivermectin for their patients and have claimed to seen amazing results. But again, in the context of there being no proof of SARS-CoV-2 therefore no proof of COVID-19. And the same can be said for every other claimed virus in human history and the claimed diseases caused by these viruses. There's no reason to take any of this. Let the body run its course. This is my advice, of course, and it's not medical advice and should not be taken as such, but let the body run its course. We need to look at paracetamol, ivermectin as the introduction of more poisons, unnecessary poisons, if there are even necessary poisons, unnecessary poisons to the body. And trust in the body's natural ability to heal and repair itself as discomforting as that might be. Now, that's not to say that in some cases, things won't get so bad that people need to see a doctor or go to the hospital for certain care for certain procedures. But in the case of taking paxlovid in the case of remdesivir which is the worst of all of these in the case of these so-called antivirals and in the case of these symptom suppressants paracetamol ivermectin i argue there's no need for any of these and Going back to the push for ivermectin, especially by the so called health freedom movement in the early days up until this day, what that was all about, I don't know, but it's certainly taken a strong hold. And there are still a lot who who laud and champion the use of ivermectin without understanding or without acknowledging the harmful effects of it, one of them being the suppression of the body's natural biological processes when it comes to illness. So that's what WHO is pushing in terms of so-called COVID-19. It's still considered an emergency and the WHO is still pushing poisons on people around the world for this non-emergency an emergency that never was that was manufactured and it is moving around demographics creating new risk groups to keep the pseudo emergency going and this is one of the key reasons the WHO exists, I argue, to carry out agendas like this to help keep people chronically ill. Now, I'm talking about the WHO in total. Again, there are individuals within these horrible systems who are trying to do good work and do do good work. But the totality of these systems, these structures, the WHO, the UN are no allies to humanity, no allies to human well being. And just because Tedros or Guterres at the UN utter some words that we might find pleasing or we might find a break from the so-called consensus in terms of the war on Palestine. We should not be tricked by these people. They are still very much focused on their overall anti-human fourth industrial revolution agendas. That said, I'm going to take a quick pause and I'll be right back here on TNT radio after this. Stay tuned.
0: Eat, drink, and be merry. Turns out the media was totally wrong about climate change and food production. From Washington, D.C., this is the Morano Minute with your host, TNT Radio's Mark Morano food crops are booming despite the alleged climate emergency. The United States sees the biggest corn harvest ever. Bloomberg News reported so much for the summer of drought and extreme heat. Quote, this year's corn harvest was the biggest ever. Farmers now have corn coming out of their ears. But that's not all. Global yields of rice, wheat, and corn have surged by a whopping 50% in the last 30 years as carbon dioxide has risen. Planet Earth is truly greening. As deserts shrink, even NASA has acknowledged the greening of planet Earth. The lesson here? The only thing we have to fear is not climate change, but climate policy. This is Mark Morano for the Morano Minute on TNT Radio. Challenging
2: the consensus and debunking the narrative. This is Viewpoint. Klaus Schwab, Finder and Executive Chairman of the World Economic Forum, claims that citizen concerns over privacy and establishing accountability in business and legal structures will require adjustments in thinking. Klaus Schwab admits that the tools of the fourth industrial revolution enable new forms of surveillance and other means of control that run counter to healthy, open societies. Klaus Schwab describes with some delight how these technologies can intrude into the hitherto private spaces of our minds, reading our thoughts, and influencing our behavior. He foresees that law enforcement agencies and courts may retrieve memories directly from people's brains to determine guilt, and even crossing a national border might one day involve a detailed brain scan to assess an individual's security risk.
0: This is Jesse Zurwell and Perspective on today's News Talk TNT Radio.
1: Welcome back to Perspective here on TNT Radio, where we are live 24-7. I am Jesse Zirwell, and I am, as I said earlier, flying solo today. Now, moving from the WHO to the UN, I want to get back to this briefing that took place on Friday of last week. Yesterday with Issa Blumi, I went over Tedros' statements, so no need to do that again. But what did some of the other parties to this briefing have to say? Well, according to the press release at press.un.org, Israel's representative said that his country is providing safe passage to Gaza, for Gazans to exit an active war zone, but Hamas is preventing them from leaving. Israel has also exposed to the world that Hamas has its headquarters in and under El Shifa Hospital. He added, stating that over 16 years, Hamas has turned every inch of Gaza into a, quote, terror trap, unquote using medical workers and patients as human shields the government of, of Israel has gone above and beyond to mitigate civilian casualties but Hamas must be held accountable he said emphasizing quote Israel is fighting the war for its very future and existence unquote several things to unpack there there is no evidence none i've seen provided either that hamas is preventing gazans from leaving along so-called safe passage corridors to add to that these so-called safe passage corridors are being bombed are being targeted by the zionist occupation entities military and when people arrive in the so-called safe zones, like Han Yunus in the south of the Gaza Strip, or in Rafa, also in the south of the Gaza Strip, they are there subjected to bombardment. And co- according to a statistic provided by either Al Jazeera or Press TV yesterday, and which one exactly is slipping my mind according to the palestinian health ministry 48 percent of those killed in gaza so far have been killed in the south which is supposedly a safe zone in terms of israel exposing to the world that hamas has its headquarters in and under al shifa hospital No evidence for that has been provided whatsoever. The staff at al-Shifa, along with international aid agencies, to put them in general terms, have offered to open up the hospital to the world to show that Hamas does not have a headquarters or any operations running out of or from under Al Shifa. And with regard to 16 years, and over that time, Hamas turning every inch of Gaza into a quote, terror trap, unquote, using medical workers and patients as human shields. It bears pointing out again, that for more than 16 years, israel has completely blockaded the gaza strip from land air and sea has barely let in any necessary supplies for people to live it's also imposed regimes like one i covered several months ago in terms of calorie counting in which a man named dove weissglass determined the exact amount of calories gazans could consume to sit to stay at a subsist, a subsist I'll get there subsist subsistence level and not starve on top of this we've had unrelenting violence carried out against the people of gaza in terms of a series of wars waged by israel on gaza we had one in 2008 2009 another one in 2012 another one in 2014 another one in 2021 and this one now and no proof has ever been shown of Hamas or any other resistance fighters using medical workers as patients, medical workers and patients as human shields. However, there has been plenty of documentation of Zionist occupation forces using those very people and other civilians, including children, as human shields. The death toll in Gaza is almost at 11,500 people. The vast majority of them civilians and the vast majority of those being women and children. Approximately 5,000 children have been murdered thus far. And just that alone gives the lie to the statement that Israel has gone above and beyond to mitigate civilian casualties. Why this man and his delegation who now appear in the UN wearing yellow stars of David, harking back to the Holocaust, to the Jewish ghettos in which Jews were made to wear such badges to identify themselves to the Nazis, which is a disgusting performative spectacle, in my opinion, which desecrates the memory of those who were murdered in the Holocaust and their survivors. Why this man is allowed to speak and say these things, I don't know. As I've stated before, I am a free speech absolutist to use that term. So I'm not suggesting that he be censored, but this is outrageous. These are outrageous lies, provable lies. Moving on. Among council members, speakers were united in their concern about the catastrophic humanitarian situation in Gaza and renewed their call for unimpeded and sustained humanitarian access. They remain divided, however, on how the 15-member organ should respond, with some urging an immediate ceasefire, while others underlined the importance of humanitarian causes. To this, I'll just say this is... Pathetic. And I think what the UN has been meant to do since its creation back in 1945, if I'm getting that date right, it's been meant to not take a firm stand in the face of what is obviously a genocide, but to manage that in some capacity and manage that in service of agendas, like it's 2030 agenda, and that being intimately tied to the fourth industrial revolution. And in that context, I think it's important to point out again that the fourth industrial revolution, it's not about just technological advancement It's not about just transhumanism. It's about what it takes to get to or try to create such a hellish world. And that involves the mass murder of people who, in part, want little or nothing to do with this so-called next stage of capitalism. And... I'll point out too that these council members are in a very comfortable position in new york they can go back and forth bicker back and forth knowing that they'll put forward something with all the right language but it's going to be struck down it's going to be vetoed by the u.s and there's really no price to pay for that and they can say well we tried and perhaps yes they are trying but Where's the outrage? Where's the standing up and saying, we're not going to take this anymore? At what point do we realize that diplomacy is meant to manage, meant to inhibit, meant to contain, which is not to say that diplomacy should be thrown out the window, but when it's proving to be as useless and as conducive to genocide as it is right now, well, I suggest that more action needs to be taken. And a conversation ought to be had about what constitutes that action. I don't have the answer, but clearly this is not working. And it's pathetic as people in Gaza continue to be murdered on mass at El Shifa hospital, which was mentioned by Israel's representative. Bodies are relegated to an outdoor courtyard, because there's no space inside the hospital at this point. Some of them are being picked at by stray dogs. Others have been buried in mass graves. I watched the footage myself of bulldozers moving these bodies into mass graves buried under sand. And clearly, this constipation of the Security Council is doing nothing to help the situation. And they seem to be getting farther and farther removed from the reality of what the people of Gaza and also what the people of the occupied West Bank are suffering. And to that, I should add the people in the occupied part of Palestine known as Israel where Palestinian Israelis and other Arab Israelis, those with so-called Israeli citizenship, are being targeted for voicing their solidarity, either actually voicing it or voicing it online on social media, are being targeted for this by occupation forces arrested and jailed. This is happening mass in the occupied west bank in particular and i want to point out too that right now in hebron where isa amro who spoke with me on this program last week lives there is a section of that city called h2 remember this is a divided city along apartheid lines h2 is now under a so-called curfew where Palestinians who live and only Palestinians live in h2 are not just completely surrounded in this h2 area of Hebron but they are only allowed to leave their homes three times a week three days a week and for one hour each day so that is happening in the occupied west bank while the genocide in gaza is happening and i would argue that a genocide in the occupied west bank is taking place since the 7th of october almost 200 palestinians have been murdered in the occupied west bank thousands upon thousands have been arrested The latest number I saw is that approximately 65 arrests are taking place each day, and the raids being carried out by the occupation forces are getting more and more brutal, including murder by drone strikes. And meanwhile, we have the Security Council members dithering and bickering and getting absolutely nowhere. And yes, we should point out the veto power of the U.S. and what it's done to stifle any kind of so-called resolution to this so-called conflict as they continue to deem it, which the language they use is pathetic in and of itself. But it's not as if the other members are powerless. It's not as if Russia and China, who are permanent members of the Security Council, are powerless. It's not as if the uae not a permanent member but a member nonetheless and soon to be an official brics member it's not as a, as if it is powerless but these entities have economic and especially fourth industrial revolution economic interests that supersede their concern for the ongoing genocide of palestinians In terms of the United States representative, the United States representative detailed how his country is working with Israel, Egypt, and the United Nations to ensure the entry of food, fuel, water, and medicines into Gaza, but acknowledged that the quantity is nowhere near enough. Beginning today, so last Friday, Israel will enact four-hour pauses in its military operations in northern Gaza to be announced three hours ahead, he said, adding that such pauses will also help in the context of the safe release of hostages. So we'll pause the annihilation for four hours, although I've yet to see any of those four hours fully four-hour pauses fully materialized, and then we'll resume the annihilation. How that's going to help anything, especially since Palestinians in Gaza are being attacked while they're being displaced and being attacked where they resettle to be displaced, and how this is propelling... The displacement the ethnic cleansing of palestinians in gaza how this is helping anything is beyond me and how it's going to help in the context of the safe release of hostages is beyond me but this is what we get from the u.s The Russian Federation's delegate noted his country's efforts, including an announcement by its emergency ministry on 10 November of the delivery of a fourth consignment of 25 tons of food and medicine to Egypt. However, the United States is obstructing peace initiatives, he said, emphasizing the importance of a ceasefire. Quote, only this and not certain short-term pauses is the only real measure That would help avoid new casualties, unquote, he said. So according to him, food is being food and medicine are being delivered to Egypt, but they're not getting in through the Rafah crossing. Now that's not Russia's fault, insofar as I can tell. That is the fault of Egypt, Israel and the u.s but with regard to a ceasefire and this being the only thing and not short-term pauses that would help avoid new casualties well yes in the short term but we have to address the history of what's led up to this which did not start on october 7th And we have to address justice for Palestinians, the end of the siege of Gaza, the end of all Zionist occupation of Palestine, the right of return of refugees and total equality and self-determination for Palestinians, that this these larger goals, these root goals, these root issues are being tabled in service of immediate so-called solutions is very problematic. I think they should both be advanced at the same time. In fact, I think they must be advanced at the same time. But this never happens. This never has happened for the last 75 plus years and it's not happening now as for the uae the representative of the united arab emirates which requested today's meeting last friday's meeting said that israel must end its siege of gaza and reinstate essential services its attacks will not bring security to that country she added sustained and multi-day humanitarian pauses are true or truces which are fundamental for achieving the goal of a durable and sustained ceasefire must be activated, she stated, emphasizing that the two-state solution must be the overarching goal for achieving peace and stability in the Middle East. So here we have the UAE, which I'm going to get into much more tomorrow. Here we have the UAE, parroting the language of essentially Netanyahu and his regime in terms of sustained and multi-day humanitarian pauses or truces, tactical pauses as Netanyahu has put them. And these will ultimately lead to the goal of a durable and sustained ceasefire. And then we have the emphasis on the two-state solution and her claim that emphasizing this so-called solution must be the overarching goal for achieving peace and stability in the Middle East, which, as I've said before, and I'll say again, is no solution at all. Israel has created facts on the ground in the West Bank, especially that long ago rendered a two-state solution as proposed by the oslo accords in 1993 impossible there is no two-state solution there must be one democratic insofar as democracy exists anymore state for palestinians for jews arabs muslims jews christians Druze one state for all of them where they all have an equal say that will achieve go a long way toward achieving peace and stability in the Middle East but that certainly cannot be countenanced by Israel, certainly cannot be countenanced by the U.S and certainly not cannot be countenanced by the UAE and for good reason with Israel, the U S and the UAE. Now, just before I finish up, I'll give an inkling as to why the UAE is taking this pathetic stance. And this comes from a Reuters article, which was published on the 11th of November titled, Exclusive, UAE Plans to Maintain Ties with Israel Despite Gaza Outcry, Sources Say. And in part, and I will be getting into this in more detail tomorrow, as the summary reads, UAE hopes to moderate Israel's Gaza campaign Hamas seen by Abu Dhabi as existential threat. And I think most importantly here, UAE has close economic security ties with Israel. Now to start us off where I will pick up tomorrow, the United Arab Emirates plans to maintain diplomatic ties with Israel despite international outcry over the mounting toll of the war in Gaza and hopes to have some moderating influence over israeli campaign over the israeli campaign while safeguarding its own interests according to four sources familiar with uae government policy abu dhabi became the most prominent arab nation to establish diplomatic ties with israel in 30 years under the u.s brokered abraham accords in 2020. That paved the way for other Arab states to forge their own ties with Israel by breaking a taboo on normalizing relations without the creation of a Palestinian state. Much more to get into with this tomorrow, but as a prelude, as a preview, I want to say that it's not just about geopolitics, it's not just about security, it is largely about the Fourth Industrial Revolution and the development of technology and new economic and technology paradigms that serve the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Both Israel and the UAE are huge players and contributors to the tech space, particularly Web3, particularly the crypto space, particularly these decentralized ledger technologies that we're told are tools are liberation of liberation but i see as anything but that's it for me for today i will be back at the same time tomorrow thank you so much for tuning in here on tnt radio take care